You are Locked On Ravens, your daily Baltimore Ravens podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to another Taco Tuesday episode of Locked on Ravens. Kevin Ostriker here with you and of course continuing with the AFC North Divisional Crossover. We're going to have that in the second and third segments talking about the Steelers. But for the first one, it's Taco Tuesday. So of course you know what that means. Spencer Schultz of Baltimore Beatdown has returned for us here. Spencer, how are you doing today? Doing fantastic. Another, uh, well, I guess the first week of the kind of official offseason, so... The XFL kind of braced the fall of that a little bit, did a little XFL watching and uh, just continuing to get into draft season and free agency and all that good stuff is one of those nerds, those football nerds that I just love those two avenues. I love uh, free agency. I love the draft. I remember last year I was I feel so stupid now, but it was honestly fun at the time listening to Le'Veon Bell's album at midnight to see what team he was going to and then being like, oh, this has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> Remember that? God, that seems like such a long time ago. The Le'Veon Bell sweepstakes and all the other things. The Ravens kind of waiting it out. And of course, the draft. But the Ravens, as you mentioned, Spencer, the first full week of the offseason is here. And the Ravens already making moves yesterday, announcing that they signed safety Chuck Clark to an extension. Something that we've talked about and something that you've talked about as well on some other shows, Spencer. Signed him to a $10 million deal with up to $9 million in incentives, taking that up to around $19 million. What were your initial reactions when you first heard this news? It was another smart move. It's in the same category as Pat Ricard and Tavon Young and almost Nick Boyle. Nick Boyle was a little closer to free agency, but it was just a smart move to ink an ascending guy, a, low, a lower draft pick, who surprisingly, I mean, when you go look back at Chuck Clark's you know, combine, and kind of some of the things that people said about him at Virginia Tech and some of his ability. I mean, the dude ran a 6.85 three cone, a 4.07 shuttle, had a 4.5440, which is pretty damn fast for a safety. Threw up 16 bench press reps, and then coming in at you know six foot and 208 pounds, he's got good size for a safety. So uh, it's very intriguing. The thing with Chuck Clark is that it feels like he's been around for a while and played in all these games when he only has 14 career starts. He only has a thousand career snaps. Uh, with 900 special team snaps and then 1,059 snaps on defense. So he hasn't even started an entire full season yet, but he plays like a veteran. Uh, He definitely will continue to ascend with more experience as safety and DB in general is position where technique and just seeing what different guys do, what different offenses do, and kind of getting, you know, your second and third trip around the sun doing that and seeing those concepts helps a lot. So Chuck Clark figures to be at the beginning of a very good career, a guy who obviously took over the green dot, which got a lot of acclaim, which definitely the defense benefited by the return of Jimmy Smith and then the acquisitions of Bynes and Ford and especially Marcus Peters and then Ellis and Pico and all those guys. So uh, there was a lot going on, a lot of transition, and Clark was a guy who took over the green dot, and he definitely had a lot of pre-snap responsibility. So Ravens were wise to ink him, and he kind of can take over and do what they wanted Tony Jefferson to do. But Chuck Clark just has a little bit more length and a little bit more versatility. Uh, He's a little bit bigger of a guy in general. He can match up with those running backs and tight ends a little bit better just with more length and size on him. So it was a very smart move, although it might spell the end of Tony Jefferson kind of written in stone now at this point. Yeah, and let's talk about a bit that, Spencer, the Tony Jefferson dilemma the Ravens have here. A guy who is absolutely loved in the locker room. And, of course, his time in Baltimore has not gone 
the way that he's wanted it to, the way the Ravens have wanted it to as well. He signed a four-year, $34 million deal with Baltimore coming from Arizona in 2017, was regarded as one of the top free agent players on the market at that point. And when the Ravens, or if the Ravens cut Jefferson, they'd save a lot of money. And with Chuck Clark taking up some more of the cap, Jefferson, I believe, is around the fifth highest paid safety or strong safety within the entire league. Are you sure that this is the end of Jefferson? And maybe if they cut him, do you think they could potentially bring him back and put him in more of a reserve role where he could maybe play to his strengths a bit more? I believe it is the end for Tony Jefferson. It's unfortunate with the way his season ended with an ACL. And it is uh, he is a locker room guy that everybody loves. He was a part of the council, which consisted of Marlon Humphrey, Matt Judon, Anthony Levine, and Peanut Owasso. And then, you know, that was a, a big group and kind of the locker room defensive core and through the offseason and stuff. And they had a lot of jokes going on and whatever with the media. And then now you look at it and Marlon Humphrey might be the only guy coming back from that group. So we'll see how that plays out. But Jefferson... He's a guy that you want to root for. He was undrafted, a little bit surprising. He was pretty damn good at Oklahoma. And he, you know, made the Arizona Cardinals, got a reputation for himself being a really hard worker and a hard hitter and a guy that can get really scrappy and had a lot of strips during his time with the Cardinals and solidified their back end when they were still a pretty formidable opponent back in those days. And then gets a huge contract, comes to Baltimore. You love him because he says he turns down more money to come play for Baltimore instead of the Cleveland Browns, and I can't remember the third team. So obviously, you know, seems like a guy that was exactly what the Ravens needed at that safety position at the time and had a, a couple okay seasons next to Eric Weddle, and then this past year was definitely not his best play. There were some times where he just completely over-pursued plays and things, so he kind of looks like he had taken steps back since he initially inked that big contract uh, three years ago, and it just kind of seems like definitely not going to be back at that price tag. He kind of posted on Instagram about that. There was a little uh, shot that he's not going to take less. And I believe other teams would sign him. I mean, if you go look at PFF, he's turned in some 70-plus grades at safety and uh, has been one of the better strong safeties in the NFL. He certainly could start for probably half of the teams in the NFL or more at that position. So I think he'll get cut and then probably go find himself maybe a one-year deal or a two-year deal with a player or team option for maybe a modest five, ten, fifteen million dollars, something of the sort, and go see if he can ink himself a bigger contract along the way. But obviously we wish all the best for Tony, a guy who's so well liked, has such a great personality, so much fun with the media and uh, definitely had some really nice plays. I mean, during his time in Baltimore, one of the standout plays of any player on the Ravens really was that crazy kind of strip catch fumble recovery that he had against the Steelers on Vance McDonald back in 2018. Uh, so he definitely has had some highlights, definitely has had a couple low points there, some bumps in the road, some ups and downs and all the good stuff, but definitely a good guy and wish the best for Tony. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth there, Spencer, the play that I was going to bring up exactly that, the Vance McDonald strip fumble recovery, and it almost went for a touchdown too. Jefferson's knee was just barely down. They originally did call it a touchdown, but upon further review, put the ball back, but again, one of the great plays from Tony Jefferson, but I mean... It's just the business side of the NFL, something where you have to understand that, yeah, Jefferson might have had some good plays in Baltimore, but it's just not the right fit, I think, for the Ravens, especially with the deal that Chuck Clark got. And I think that really was the final kicker on, you know, would Jefferson come back or are they going to cut him? And I think at this point they are going to release him. But Spencer, now moving into some draft coverage, because as you mentioned, the draft is one of the fun things to prepare for, to look at, to watch tape. 
is the Ravens kind of go about their process. They have to look at the linebackers inside and outside. As you've kind of dug into some tape and looked at some prospects, who either inside or outside do you have your eye on for Baltimore? Maybe as a steal, second, third round guy. Yeah, there's three guys that come to mind currently, and I haven't gone through the entire group. Uh, I've gone through a good bit of them now at this point, but three guys that I really like that stand out. Number one is Akeem Davis Gaither, who's coming out of Appalachian State. And a guy that gets a ton of buzz is Isaiah Simmons out of Clemson. He's a freak. Uh, John Ledyard of the Pewter Report covers the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, listed his position as Avenger because he's able to do basically everything and he's uh, a superhero of sorts. And Akeem Davis Gaither is not quite the freak that Isaiah Simmons is by any means. Uh, hasn't played at that high level of competition in those playoff games and things of the sort, but he's a guy who took snaps as an inside linebacker, as an edge, as a nickel, as a safety, moved all around the Appalachian State defense, compiled 200 tackles over the last two years. He has a lot of juice as a pass rusher off the edge, a ton of length, a ton of burst, a ton of speed. He's very physical. He has an interesting size he's about six foot three 220 pounds so he has kind of the size and length to go play in the slot and kind of the ideal guy to go cover tight ends uh he considers himself an inside linebacker a will that he said at the senior bowl he listed him he said basically i would like to play a will and he fits in that mold very well the physicality that he plays with and the way that he engages with blockers uh, especially for being an undersized guy is promising he has the frame to put on a lot of weight and he had the production there. He's a very smart player, and he's very good in coverage. So he could be a potential weapon. The Ravens actually interviewed him at the Senior Bowl. He was their second interview after Terrell Lewis from Alabama. So Akeem Davis-Gaither is a guy that I really like. Uh, the next one is Jordan Brooks, hailing out of Texas Tech, a guy who ascended. He had some sort of conference accolades every single year, got tackles very early on at Texas Tech, and then became an enforcer this past year. And Big 12 defenders do come with a grain of salt because of the air raid ways and uh, some of the prolific offenses that you see there, and the defenses are somewhat strange. Baylor runs a 3-3-5 and things like that, but Jordan Brooks is a guy who reads his keys really well. He's got good sideline-to-sideline -side speed. He's not exactly, you know, a Devin Bush running a 4-4, but I can see him in the 4-5, 4-6 range. Has a lot of production, over-pursues plays at times, but, you know, he's he flies to the ball. He's a very solid tackler. He had 20 tackles for loss as an inside linebacker uh, this past year, so he reads his keys really well and shows some ability in coverage, and I think that's an area where he could improve, but he has all the skills too, and uh, he's very nimble. And then a really late-round guy, potentially, unless someone just really wants to take a chance on him, is Willie Gay Jr., hailing out of Mississippi State. Willie Gay Jr. It was a four-star recruit who was from Starkville, Mississippi, which is where Mississippi State's campus is. Uh, he ended up staying and going there. He was a really big recruit for Mississippi State and didn't get a ton of time his freshman year, put on some size. He's about six foot two, 240 now, moves insanely well for that weight, better than anyone who plays at that weight in college football, in my opinion. PFF has him turning out two consecutive seasons of 90 and 93.9 in coverage. He has really great hips. He has a really nice back pedal. He reads quarterbacks really well. He understands route com concepts. He actually picked off to attack Viloa, a play after sacking him in a game against Alabama in 2018 where he had two sacks and an interception. Uh, he ended up getting suspended this past year along with, I believe, 10 other Mississippi State players because they were allegedly uh, committing academic violations by having a tutor take online courses for them or something of the sort or was doing their homework and things, and all of them got caught. Uh, so he ended up getting suspended for, I believe, six games. Comes in, first play he gets on defense is against Kentucky, pick six. 
immediately. He brings a ton of energy, a ton of juice. Um, he engages with blockers really well. Sometimes he is a little bit awkward, and it seems like he uh, kind of reads the play before the play. He tries to diagnose the play a little bit too much as opposed to being reactive. There are some snaps where down on the goal line, it's like he thinks he knows exactly what's coming and takes a false step or two because of it on a run play that he thinks is going to go to the right side and the run play ends up going to the left side. So he's caught himself behind the eight ball there, but a ton of ability, not a ton of production, not a ton of experience. Only had, uh, I believe, 12 combined starts at Mississippi State, but I anticipate him to run really well at the combine, put in some good agility times. He has great strength, so he could be a combine freak, and I could see him being a guy that could sneakily end up in the fourth, fifth round. Maybe he ends up dropping into the sixth or seventh or even being undrafted because of some red flags with the academic situation and whatnot. But a guy that I really like, I think that after a year or two, could end up being a really impact defender in the NFL and has some versatility because of his coverage ability mixed with his ability to shed blockers yeah and you mentioned a few key attributes there spencer you know coverage and tackling something that the ravens need to get better at especially as they've struggled over the past few years covering tight ends and running backs out of the backfield and sometimes even struggling to tackle and those three guys you mentioned i've watched a bit on them as well i totally agree with you and the ravens you know talking about linebackers they've had success drafting and even going undrafted as well you want a first second round linebacker you go your ray lewis your cj mosley route but if you want to go undrafted the ravens have had success there Danelle Ellerby, Jamil McClain, just a few of the guys who the Ravens have gotten there. But Spencer, that's all that I have for you today. Thank you again for coming on the show. And as we get into it next week, more draft coverage, more free agency, and just more offseason fun. Absolutely. It is my favorite time of the year. I do love watching football, but the draft just gets me going. And my last note, a guy to look out for is another undrafted free agent. Otara Alaka did make the team this past year, ended up being put on IR as an undrafted inside linebacker out of Texas A&M. So watch out for him. But thank you for having me on, Kevin, and I'll talk to you next week. Yeah, definitely another guy who the Ravens put a lot of trust in making the team as an undrafted free agent, so watch out for him. I'm right there with you, Spencer. When we get back, we're going to be starting our AFC North Divisional breakdown with the Steelers, so stay tuned for that, and we will be right back. All right, everyone, welcome back to the AFC North Ultimate Division crossover. I'm Chris Carter, host of Lockdown Steelers. I'm here with Kevin, Jeff, and Jake. It's day two, which means we're going to team two. And that is the Pittsburgh Steelers. Fellas, it's great to have you guys back for another day. And now we get to talk about the team I have to talk about 24-7. And I figure I want to start our talks around getting just the division standings on how people feel about what was the most defining moment of the Steelers season, which wasn't a play. It wasn't uh, it, it wasn't something that happened that stopped them from making the playoffs. It was, well, I guess it did stop and make the plays, but it was in one day when the Steelers knew they, they lost Ben Roethlisberger for the entire season and on the same day trading for Minka Fitzpatrick. After seeing it play out for a full season, the Steelers just missing the playoffs, but Minka Fitzpatrick being a first-time All-Pro guy and Ben, you know, how old is he? Is he coming back? What has been you guys' reactions? We're going to start with Kevin from Locked On Ravens, but what has been your reaction to how you've read how the Steelers dealt with that situation? Well, I'll give you my immediate reaction first, Chris. And I personally wasn't a huge fan of the move at first, but looking at it throughout the entire season and now talking to everybody here today, it was an obvious win. And the Steelers really had to make a decision. Ben Roethlisberger was done for the season. They had to say, do we trust Mason Rudolph at the time, Mason Rudolph, to go and lead this team to the playoffs? And what do we need in order 
to make that happen, the Steelers needed secondary help. Minka Fitzpatrick was available. A guy who the Ravens were actually looking at, and there were rumors that the Ravens could maybe give up a first-round pick and a second or two firsts for him. There were a lot of Ravens fans clamoring for Fitzpatrick, and there was no denying Fitzpatrick's talent. But he just came into Pittsburgh, a turnover machine, a ball magnet. He's under team control for a long time. It's pretty much saying, all right, we're going to give up a year or two of control here to get a player who isn't going to break the bank until a few seasons down the line, still gave Pittsburgh a chance to win and really turn the season around for Pittsburgh. Now we could say if Mason Rudolph played a bit better, if Devlin Hodges came in, played a bit better, this team, we could be talking about potentially even probably not the AFC North champions because 14 and two was a hard record to beat, but we could potentially be talking about the fifth seed here in the AFC and looking ahead to next season. And we'll get into that in the next segment, but talking about what Fitzpatrick brings to this team saying publicly that he wants to move around the defense, such a team first guy and a guy who, when you look at the Steelers pass rush, something we talked about yesterday, if the pass rush, such as TJ Watt, Hargrave to it and Hayward, all those guys, once they got to the quarterback, the quarterback had to make a decision, either take the sack or throw the ball into a secondary that now stouted and now had Minka Fitzpatrick along guys with Joe Hayden, Steven Nelson and the like. So when Roethlisberger went down, Steelers had to make a decision. And I think they ultimately did make the right one there. Yeah, it's funny because it's it's there's a there's a there's a divide when it happened. There was I'd say there was a 50 50 divide among Steeler Nation. You had certain writers saying this was great. I was on the pro side. I thought it was a great move because I was like, they're not going anywhere this year. And the idea of that they might get their pro. I thought they were always going to end up right in the middle of the draft, you know, 18, 19. They never had they never finish in the top 10. So I was like, they, this this is like getting a top ten pick by getting Minka Fitzpatrick, and uh, you know, and I know he was part of why they finished eight and eight, but that was why I liked it. Uh, Jeff, your take from Locked On Browns on how that impacted their season, and you seeing the Steelers, the Browns beat the Steelers for the first time in several years, and uh, you know, but they also saw Minka Fitzpatrick and how the team sort of shifted throughout the season. Um, for me, the move um, at the time, I, I guess you, there's no way you can question the move. I mean, you brought in an absolute stud in the secondary. Um, but for me, it's more of, you know, you look at it now where it's at. Look, I mean, the whole point of bringing in Minka was let's beef up the defense and see if we can make this a playoff team. Obviously, they fell a little short. Um, and what we got to see this year is there is no life after Brent, Ben Roethlisberger on the roster. I believe everybody in the room, even you, Chris, agrees with that. There is no life after Ben on this roster. And for me, it just seems, you know, you look at Phillip Rivers now is going to move on. Eli Manning has retired. And it seems like, and I'm not saying you, Chris, necessarily, but it seems like a lot of Ravens, a lot of uh, Steelers fans are just like, well, Ben will be back. At 38 years old, after an elbow killed his entire season, I guess week two, week three, whatever it was. He'll be back and we'll be fine. It seems really weird to just say that about a 38-year-old quarterback. Look, you know, Ben looks like the, you know, the high school hero who's now been the 13-year offensive line coach at his alma mater. And, you know, he's already got two ex-wives. Um, you know, he's no more athletic anymore. We get all of that. But my question is, is, you know, it seems weird and no first-round pick. And we realize that Duck ain't it. We realize that Rudolph ain't it. And so they're going to go into this year and look, it could go really well, but if it 
doesn't, you know, then are they going to fall back a year or two? Because without a first round pick, they're not sniffing any of the top quarterbacks this year. So I think they have a lot invested in what they think Ben can be this year. And it just seems really weird that we're like, you know, I mean, you look at baseball, you look at anything where there's arm injuries and all of a sudden, you know, what if Ben ain't got the fastball anymore? What, you know, what if he ain't got, you know, the precision? What if he ain't be able to drop balls in space? And either way, the make a move is fine because you got a stud. And for him to say, I want to move around more, which is funny because that was the same thing he said to get out of Miami. Miami, yeah. Uh, Yes. Well, I know I want to be this. Well, no, you're, you know, this is what it is. This is the year and the era you play in. You are a great defensive back. So we're going to put more on your plate because this is what we want from you. So it's it's weird that he's saying this now because it was the same things he used to get out of Miami. But either way, you got yourself a bowler. Um, you know, obviously Minka grew up 15 minutes from here in Jersey. He's a fantastic player. I don't have an issue with the player, the move, but my question is, is, you know, this is all based on, you know, Ben coming back and being normal Ben. And if Ben was 28, I'd say, all right, saddle up, let's roll. But at 38, it seems a lot, it seems really, really disingenuous to just assume he's going to come back and be who he was. So, Jeff, that's a very good question, and and I think that that's where a lot of Steelers fans are at. A lot of people think he's going to get back to being, you know, 2014 through 2019 or 2018 Ben, where he's slinging the ball all the time. But I honestly think the Steelers don't plan on and are relying on him to do that. I think that they'll rely on him to be a play caller, to know the offense, but to also know when to switch out of having to throw the ball too much and go to a running game. Now, they have to develop a stronger running game for next year, and that's what I think their top pick will either be a really strong offensive lineman that falls to them or one of the top running backs that fall to them. Cause I don't see a lot of teams picking among this running back crop too early in this draft. So I think it's going to be more so about, they're going to, they're, they're not going to expect Ben to lead a top, top, top 10 offense anymore. They're going to say, Hey, get, if you can be what you were in your first, you know, four or five years with the team, which is the last time that they won the Super Bowl with him, uh, and not necessarily in how you play, but in how, how often you throw and how much production we get out of you, that I think that would be more conducive to the way that they're building their roster. Uh, but there's a lot of time before the draft and free agency and who knows what's going to happen with the Steelers moving forward. But wanted to get to Jake on the same topic. I know we've we've talked about this a few times on air and off air. Where, where do you stand out the season's done and over with? So I'm going to I'm going to come at this, right? I'm going to punch holes in this me, because the Steelers are not my boys and I've been traumatized since 2005 thanks to Kimo von Olhoffen. So here's where we're going to start. We're going to start with looking at Minka Fitzpatrick in a vacuum. Started out with the Steelers a little shaky, right? Doesn't really get it going. Has three amazing games, has some interceptions in the first 6 games or so with the Steelers, and then his last few games with the Steelers still good, but not great. I would argue he didn't have an interception after what week 10. So he, he goes, that's okay. He's not getting his hands on the ball. He's a free safety, right? So I'm just looking at his play, right? And you're right. He's not targeted a lot, but he's not getting his hands on the ball either. So mm-hmm. I don't know how you avoid a free safety. I haven't watched a tape on all these games, but I'm just looking at his ball production. And so that falls off a little bit, but beyond Minka Fitzpatrick, and he could be a very good player for the Steelers. That's neither here nor there. The Steelers gave up, what amounts to the first team out of the playoffs in the AFC draft position to get him in a year where they don't have a quarterback. Then they go on 
as you point out, after a really bad start to finish 8-8. Eight and eight. But the strength of victory for the Steelers is 324. The Steelers go 8-8, eight and eight, but they beat the following teams. The Cincinnati Bengals twice, which, given the Bengals are bad this year, the Los Angeles Chargers, who were bad this year, the Miami Dolphins, who were bad this year, the Los Angeles Rams is probably their best win. They missed the playoffs. Indianapolis Colts, Jacoby Brissett, never going to be impressed with that kind of win. They beat the Cleveland Browns. They beat the Cardinals with their rookie quarterback, and that's it. Those are the teams that Pittsburgh beat this year. So you have a close loss to Seattle. You have a close loss to San Francisco before they figure themselves out, right? You have a, a blowout loss in week one to New England. And then down at the end of the year, you have a loss to Buffalo, who, good team, right? Playoff team. You lose to New York, who's terrible. And then you lose to Baltimore. Did Baltimore play as starters in week 17? I wasn't watching. No, so, they did not. So the, the end of the year doesn't go great. So I'm just sitting here wondering, are the Steelers just fool's gold, right? Is this 8-8 eight and eight record a lot better looking than perhaps the quality of the team? So, I mean, I do think that there's merit to that. Um, you know, it's always funny people when you when you when you want to say, oh, I, I like this team. But oftentimes when you look at teams record, you could do that for a lot of teams that win. Unless you have a team like where like the Steelers in 2008, they had the hardest strength of schedule when they when they won the Super Bowl. Then there's but a lot of times you can poke holes and say like like the Browns last year. Everyone's like, OK, well, wait a minute. Slow down. A lot of their wins were against teams that had losing records and didn't make the playoffs. And then, you know, you saw how it played out this year. Um, my biggest thing with the um, my, my biggest thing with with the Steelers and two years results, I do think people do need to keep their uh, keep their pants on when it comes to uh, expectations. Um, but I also think that when you look at a lot of those games, people underestimate how bad Devlin Hodges was and how limiting he was to their offense. And the fact that, you know, don't forget, you know, yeah, they had the close loss to Seattle in Mason Rudolph's first ever appearance in the NFL, but then his first ever start was against the Niners, the NFC champions. And they were like one, they were a James Conner fumble away from winning with Mason Rudolph's first start ever against those, those San Francisco 49ers. I think that the Steelers, they do need to make several steps, but I'm also, I'm not on the train that I don't think that they're completely out of it when it comes to next year. They're just going to be some bums and, and get washed away. I think that if they'll be hovering around the, eight and eight to 11 and five point this time, you know, when, when, when they're going to next year, if they get, if they get the, if they get a healthy bend back and they get a running game, I think that changes a few things, but they don't. I, I think that that, if they're, if they're relying on Mason Rudolph next year, yeah, they're toast, but that's, that's my take. We're going to be back getting a few more of these takes right after these commercials. Welcome back to the AFC North Ultimate Division crossover. This episode focusing on the Steelers and how the opponents across the division are taking on how that season just progressed. Now, going back to Kevin, locked on Ravens. The ultimate matchup that we know is going to get played up by the NFL when they announce the schedule, I guarantee you that at least one of the Ravens game, and they always are, but at least one of those games will be a primetime event or a four o'clocker that CBS just like blows up with Jim Nance and Tony Romo or whoever partners with Jim Nance this year. And I guarantee you all week, you're going to see the promo of Lamar Jackson versus TJ Watt and Nick Fitzpatrick. And that's going to be the hype of the game. Now, granted the Ravens swept the Steelers this year, but they were, they, they were an overtime, uh, an overtime fumble away from maybe tying or, or losing to Devlin Hodges 
with Lamar Jackson having three turnovers in that game. Kevin, what are your what is your outlook on? And we talked about Lamar Jackson and the hype that I think is real around him. What is your take on what the Ravens have to do to keep building around him to get ready to to play the Steelers defense and how it progressed last year? Well, I mean, when we talk about that Steelers defense, and we talked about this a bit yesterday, Chris, it's that pass rush, TJ Watt, Cam Hayward, and those guys give a lot of teams problems. And we'll throw out the Week 17 game because the Ravens didn't play their starters. The Pittsburgh Steelers were decimated with injuries. So looking back to Week 4, you're right. An overtime fumble away from the Pittsburgh Steelers, pretty much stealing that one from the Ravens. And it's easy to think about, well, what if that did happen? If if Juju Smith didn't fumble that football, Devlin Hodges came in after Mason Rudolph was literally knocked out of the game in more ways than one. And literally almost propelled the Steelers to victory, finished seven of nine for 68 yards. Not the gaudy stat line that everybody would expect when talking about that. But I think that Hodges played really well in that game. When you look to play the Pittsburgh Steelers, especially from a standpoint of Lamar Jackson, they forced him into some bad throws. Lamar Jackson did not throw a lot of interceptions last season. But the one that I think was his worst came against Pittsburgh when it was towards the end of the half. He threw, picked it off. It's just a terrible throw by Lamar Jackson. And I don't say that often, especially not from this past season. But part of that and most of that had to do with the Pittsburgh Steelers pass rush. Ronnie Stanley was one of the best pass protectors throughout the entire NFL or in the best pass blocking grade from pro football focus. He and the rest of that Ravens offensive line, they were still trying to bond, still trying to gel. And the Ravens were on a bit of a down streak, losing to both the Kansas City Chiefs and Jeff's Cleveland Browns. So it's safe to say, well, what if Juju Smith-Schuster didn't fumble that ball? Would the Ravens have finished 14-2? Would they have had that momentum? Next season, looking ahead for the Ravens, they have the cap space in the draft capital. Assuming they don't do any more extensions, the Ravens signed Chuck Clark to an extension yesterday. But looking at the Ravens looking to play the Steelers, they have to get that pass rush in check. Because Lamar Jackson, we all know he can scramble. We all know he can make something out of nothing, make magic appear out of thin air. And the Ravens need to get weapons in order to help him do that. And when you look at the Steelers, they are playing with a bit of fire here with James Conner, I think, looking ahead to the offseason. Are they tired of James Conner getting injured? Are they going to look to the draft, a drafter running back in the first two rounds? If they get a healthy Ben Roethlisberger, and if they get a sound rushing attack, the Ravens struggled with their run defense. But I'm still confident that if that happens for the Ravens, they will address their weakness in the defense, which is their run game. But overall, Chris, I'm just looking for two very solid, very entertaining, and very high-powered football games between these two teams. Absolutely. I, I look I look at this at this as a potential, you know, blockbuster when it comes to ratings, because everyone, whether you like or you don't like Lamar Jackson, he is a talking point for the NFL and he will be for the next few years, at least depending on how he plays. I mean, I, I remember after the 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 Pro Bowl skills competition, when there was like that Clay Travis guy who came out and said, well, look at Lamar Jackson. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Stop, cool. uh, but uh, you know, either way, Lamar Jackson's a talking point. Steelers Ravens has always been a draw. And I, I just, I look, I, I'm, I'm with you. I very much look forward to those games because that's going to generate so much talk and it's going to add to what's been a great rivalry. And I, I'd say the best rivalry in the, of the division uh, over the past two decades since the Ravens have, have, uh, have, have been formed. Uh, but moving forward to the team that, the, that stole their team from, the, from Cleveland, we're going to move to, to <laughs> the Browns. 
Jeff, I wanted to ask you, because I'm sure Cleveland, maybe they haven't moved on all the way, but I'm sure they're ready to put everything behind them about Miles Garrett and how this season, it looked promising. Like the, the night, like, like we were talking about off air, with eight minutes to go in that game, you're, everyone in Cleveland is like, man, we're beating the Steelers handily in our own stadium. The season's looking up and everything's going right. And then everything goes haywire. What has been your read both on the team and the fans of Cleveland and how they look at the Steelers and how that they, you know, and just the rivalry that's always been with, with them. Even when, even when the Steelers are dominating, there's still always just that, that hatred between the teams that things do pop off between them. What did you get your feel on what, where both the organization and the fans are on that right now? It's not eight minutes. It was eight seconds. I'm sitting here getting ready to do a post game show. Yeah. Took down Pittsburgh. All right. Absolutely. Beautiful. Everything about it. Oh my God. What just happened? And the thing about the entire situation with Miles Garrett was it was for the NFL. The NFL knows the guy, the man that Miles Garrett is. It was like he's not Vontez perfect. And Jake, I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I mean, you know that. But it was just like, oh my God, we just got a really, really bad situation on field, on primetime from a guy that is nothing like this. Miles Garrett's in an Apple store. And there's some kid trying to buy a new iPhone, and he's short on money. And Miles Garrett's like, yeah, I'll pick up the tab. And Like, this is just the dude he is. Like, the NFL, like, they, they love to punish people. But every now and then they get in a situation where somebody's got to be punished who does not fit the criteria. And it's like, well, we really got to punish him hard. I'm not stunned whatsoever that he was told, this is it, your year's over. We said it on that postgame show that night. But For me, honestly, the worst one was Demarius Randall getting suspended for the follow game in Pittsburgh. How did Pittsburgh win? Duck Hodges hit a couple of long balls. Like, look, you lose your star for whatever reason, whether it's injury, whether it was the – and I will say it was a freak incident because Miles Garrett is like the biggest, strongest, fastest nerd that ever walked the planet. But somebody pushed him to his point, and he lost it. You look at players like Demarius Randall, who got suspended for that game due to the fact of you know, the game at Pittsburgh. Where, and so Duck Hodges hits a couple of long balls. And all of a sudden, the season was over. And it was, you know, like other people, well, this and, and fans, well, Miles Garrett, Miles Garrett. Well, no, this game was close. This game was within range. How about talking about the guy who got suspended because he was too lazy to show for freaking practice? Or he literally said the words on a 31 degree day, it's a little too cold to practice outside. Seriously? Um, you were playing the game in Pittsburgh. It was going to be outside. It, it just gets so weird to cover, like like we all do it, and you cover these teams as deep as we do, and some of the idiotic minutia that comes up. And when we're talking about this said safety, who you know a year ago was like, wow, you know maybe he's looking at a four year, forty million dollar deal, twenty five guaranteed. You heard anybody even mention this guy's name to this point? Everybody, right. oh, these are free agent targets. These are free agent targets. Demarius Randall, I mean, his name has gone literally like stone cold. I hear that. With that, we'll move on to the Bengals. Uh, Jake, of course, everyone's talking about how Joe Burrow is just the automatic first-round pick. The, the, the Bengals aren't even on the clock. We know that's what they're doing. What is your prospect of – of how he can do in his rookie year, considering the Bengals, I forget the name of the tackle that they lost, but he, you know, he was, he was their first round pick last year and he didn't even get to play that much uh, at all. Um, and 
what is your take on what they need to do to build around Joe Burrow to get ready to play teams in the AFC North, but especially the Steelers? Yeah, I think that there's a lot that they can do to improve the team. You look at their draft needs this year. It's quarterback in the first round, and then after that you can say, well, they probably shouldn't take a running back. Joe Mixon's pretty good. They probably shouldn't take maybe an edge player because they feel good about Carl Lawson and Sam Hubbard. But then you look at the rest of the roster like, yeah, you can make an argument for any other position on this team that, that they could make improvements here. And this is coming off a year where the defense wasn't on the same page for the first half of the year. They did get a lot better in their defense in the second half of the year. But how much of that is Wolves Gold too? The same way that I questioned it with the Steelers and their strength of victory, the Bengals were playing a much softer schedule in the second half. So that's something that they will have to figure out. But as far as building around Joe Burrow, they do get back, as you mentioned, Jonah Williams, the first round tackle from Alabama, who consensus, I believe, top tackle in the draft in 2019. Unless you have concerns about his 33 and a half inch arms, he should be fine as an NFL tackle. But they still do need to make some improvements on the offensive line, especially when it comes to that matchup against the Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm going to echo a little bit of what Kevin said here in that the pass rush is the most concerning part for me in that matchup. And I said that I wasn't ever going to say anything nice about the Steelers, but I will say that Stephon Tuitt, that defensive line is a solid unit. TJ Watt, I have to admit that I was wrong about TJ Watt. He got better. He had a first couple of years where there was a lot of sack production, but then he's, he backed that up and rounded out his game and was consistently getting pressure on the quarterback and is starting to look a lot like his brother in terms of the amount of disruption that he can offer for defense. So for the Bengals, they need to solidify that offensive line. I am very concerned that they feel better about that offensive line than they should because of some strides they took down the stretch. Again, when they were playing teams without much of a pass rush, but if it's Bobby Hart again at right tackle and a bunch of guys who can't figure out who wants to actually take that left guard job, then I'm worried about Joe Burrow getting it done. But then you turn on the tape of Joe Burrow, right? You look at 10 wins timeline today. For He's a writer for The Athletic. He says, I could put together a 10-minute highlight reel of Joe Burrow just escaping the pocket. And that's it. 10 minutes of it. And I'm like, yeah, do it, please. And I, I want to see it. Get me pumped up, right? But that's going to be a hard environment for, for Burrow to thrive in. And they're going to have to build the offensive line properly. They're going to have to bring back A.J. Green. They're going to have to adopt some principles of that LSU offense, namely getting more run pass option in the offense getting more deep shots worked into the offense, which means they need a deep threat. That's the thing, right? They need to find the guy that's going to be healthy and stretch the field. And hopefully that's John Ross. Hopefully that's AJ Green, but just a lot of questions, right? More questions than answers. And we'll have to see how they spend their money and spend their draft capital. And I assume we'll talk about that tomorrow when Joe and I get to run the show. Yeah. Great points by everybody. Thanks for doing the crossover. This has been another episode of the AFC North ultimate division crossover tomorrow. We'll be back. We'll be doing the Bengals-focused episode of the AFC North Ultimate Division crossover. We'll all be back as a group. Be sure to tune in.